0: This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 679 with Trudy LeBron. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 679. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. Trudy LeBron is the author of The Anti-Racist Business Book, An Equity-Centered Approach to Work, Wealth, and Leadership. Trudy is also the CEO of ScriptFlip, LLC, and the creator of the Institute for Equity-Centered Coaching, a coaching and consulting firm helping entrepreneurs build anti-racist businesses and become equity-centered coaches and leaders through their certification programs, consulting packages, and executive coaching. By the time Trudy was 16, she had two children and had dropped out of high school. All the odds were against her. Trudy has overcome those odds in every way. She holds a BA in theater, a master of science in psychology, and is currently ABD in her PhD program in social psychology. Holy cow. <laughs> so Trudy's been on the show before. She came back because she wrote a book. And you know how I am. Whenever someone writes a book, I say, you have to come back on the show and talk about the book. And we do dig into the book, but you're going to be probably very curious by the really specific piece we dig into. Well, we dig into the business piece a bit, but we actually dig into something that I think more significant and more specific to you as a listener. So hang tight for a second and I'll get to that part. After reading Trudy's book, I immediately asked her to come back onto the show because I wanted to talk about the role that we all play in building and supporting communities, businesses, and organizations. So this is not just a conversation about how to build businesses in anti-racist ways. It's really about how do you be in community and hold community members accountable? How do you participate in organizations? How do you look at the organizations that you patronize and give money to? and make sure that you're doing that in a way that is in alignment with your values. Trudy always helps me to see things in significant new ways while guiding me to become a better, more thoughtful, and inclusive citizen. And I wanted to share that with you. So this episode is explicit because one of the first things we dig into, as you might be already saw in the title, is white people shit. So in her book, her very first chapter is called white people shit. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to love this book. Trudy is hilarious, but also like in her humor, there's so much truth and so much education that's really, really crucial for us to learn. So listening to hear Trudy share why it's important to be informed on anti-racist business practices, whether you own a business, work for a business, or purchase things from businesses. So that's all y'all. She also then shares what is white people shit and what white people need to know about white people shit. She talks about white culture and how white culture is about being right and how that is so problematic for all of us. We talk about hustle culture and how hustle culture and creating a sense of urgency is a product of white supremacy. We talk about overworking and where do practices around overworking come from culturally? We talk about the responsibility each one of us holds in building anti-racist organizations from our workplaces to our churches, to our community centers, to our kids' sports leagues, everywhere around us. She digs into community agreements and what community agreements are and why they're so important anytime we gather people. And talking about white women's rage, which I think is a really important thing for us to address. I know that we have women of all backgrounds who listen to this show. But I know that we predominantly have white women listening to this show. And I think there's some really important notes here at the end of this conversation around white women's rage, what that means, what it looks like, and how our rage can sometimes be very traumatizing for black women. So, oh my gosh, there's a lot in here. You're going to learn a lot. Trudy is an amazing and like incredibly thoughtful and intentional leader and teacher and educator. And I just always appreciate how she holds space for people to learn in different ways and on their own pace while also holding folks accountable. So you are in for a treat. You're going to learn a lesson. You might want to listen to this one more than one time. So here we go. Please join me in welcoming back to the Shameless Mom Academy, Trudy LeBron. Trudy, welcome back to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so excited to have you here again. Thank you for having me back. So anytime someone writes a book and they've been a guest on the show in the past, I hunt them down and say, you have to come back on the show. (laughs) So you wrote a book and now you have to come back on the show. I'm so excited. Thank you. Very exciting. (laughs) Very exciting. So we're going to dig into the book in a minute and then a whole bunch of other things. Uh, before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio and what you're most excited about right now?
1: Sure. So, the personal dynamics. I love that question so much. So, I am a mom of a blended family. So, me and my husband, I got married since the last time I was on the show. Oh, that's right. So, yeah. Congratulations. So, my husband. Thank you. We have six children between us. We've been together for a very long time. So, we've, you know, raised our children together. But yeah. So, we have six, and our youngest is 13 and all of the rest of them are over 18 and my youngest is going to camp for 2 weeks so we're mm-hmm. like right now you know busy about camp things and getting doctor forms and you know all the stuff and bigger than that i've turned last year i turned 40 last october oh my gosh and i have been doing a lot of thinking about like just the next 10 years like what do mm-hmm. i want my life to be look like when I'm 50. So I'm in still like, a, I'm very much in this kind of space of thinking through like, what am I building next? I, I very much feel at the beginning of that.
0: You've started to share a little bit about what you're building next in some of your emails. And it's very exciting to see. I can't wait to see cool. it all unfold. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. I'll be definitely stopping it. We're going to be doing a lot of experimenting and, you know, fun things and still, you know, certifying coaches and doing all the justice work and really like, you know, obviously keeping that going. Um, but just trying to find more space to explore, you know, explore other things. Yeah. To give people context, I'm going to share with people
0: how we know each other, which I probably talked about when we when you were here before, but we met in a mastermind group together and I quickly was like, I want to know what Trudy does and I want to know more about it. And since then, that was a couple of years ago. Since then I've had the opportunity to participate in multiple events that you've done. I did your first year of show up and serve a year and a half ago, which was like a two day online event for coaches and leaders who want to be building anti-racist businesses. And oh my gosh, it was so, so good. And then I just got done doing a trauma-informed Practice intensive for coaches and leaders with you, which was also phenomenal. (laughs) So it's been so exciting to go from being in a group together where we were learning together to really getting to learn from you as you have been really stepping into different, uh, elevating your business in different ways. And really, I think, analyzing the impact that you want to have in the world and as you lead other people.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's, I think, the main thing really is this question I'm always coming back to about what the impact. I'm creating, what's the influence that I am having? Like, how does the way that I show up and the things that I do, you know, influence how other people show up? Like, and what's that reciprocal relationship? Right. That's what I nerd out about all the time. And it's always wonderful to have people who are along for that journey and like continuing to evaluate and evolve and not just feel like they took one course, you know, a couple of years ago. And Sarah, can you believe that that first, show up and serve course was actually two and a half years ago. Wait, it was, it was, it was 2020. Yeah. It was oh my May of gosh. Yeah. So, but that's exactly it. Right. Like crazy time, things feel like they have passed a long time ago, but yet yeah, so like, but that things are moving so quickly. Right. right?
0: What is time? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can't figure out if it's motherhood that makes time so weird or the pandemic or a combination of both. I think right? every, I think all it's, of it, I can't keep up at all. Oh my gosh, that's so wild! I have to give you a thank you. We actually, as a quick tangent, we had Asha Frost on the show recently, and she oh, was at hey. Show Up and Serve, and she was great. so phenomenal at Show Up and Serve that I started stalking her, and I was like, "When can I invite her on the show? When's the right time?" And then she wrote a book, and I was like, "That's right, her book came out, yeah." <laughs> yeah I'm like, "You wrote a book. You got to come on the show." And she was such an incredible guest. It was so oh, so that's fun. Wonderful. Yeah, so great. Okay, so you wrote a book. I want you to tell us about the book and tell us who it's for. And it's actually for everyone in this, who's listening today, but in various capacities. So can you dig into all that?
1: Yes. So I wrote a book, it's called the anti-racist business book, and it is really for everyone. I consistently am reminding people, if you work at a business, if you own a business, if you purchase things from other businesses, right? Like you should be reading this book. Because it is examining. It's not just like, how do you build your business book? It's partly an examination of what we have as, you know, business as usual, the models that we have for business as usual, and kind of looking at the ways that many of those practices are really messed up and what I have continued continued to hear from people is is that it helps to give language for things that they feel when they're interacting with businesses and they don't necessarily understand the why because the why is not something that we talk about or learn in school. So looking at how businesses operate, why people make decisions the way they do, how we have been taught some of those things, even just from like elementary school. And then it also does go into more of the, here are some steps that you can take to do better. Um, But yeah, it is, you know, I really tried to write it for everyone.
0: And which you did, and you did such a beautiful job with that. I think what was so fascinating to me, because I expected to go into it with like my entrepreneur hat on and be like, here's some things that I can apply to my business. And what was fascinating to me is I definitely was able to do that but I also was able to learn about organizations that are so different than what I do, bigger organizations, corporate world, and then being the, what you said at the end of your example of who it's for being a consumer, like being an intentional and conscientious consumer. Um, and you gave so many examples. <laughs> I was like, Oh, but I thought I was being like a really great consumer by making a certain choice. And then I was like, Oh, that's actually not like, the choice I thought it was, there's things behind the scenes that I didn't know about or think about that were really interesting. Um, and you gave examples around like businesses that do, um, the example that's coming to mind is Tom's shoes, Yeah, but that have like these impact, impact initiatives. initiatives. Yes. Yeah. And so like we, as consumers were like, Oh, that's great. Like i want to help save the world by buying Tom's shoes. And this is not to knock on Tom's shoes. Cause they do great things. Oh yeah. Looking behind the scenes to be like, well, that's like a great mission. And also what are the actual impacts of that? And is it really beneficial to the people that are supposedly going to be benefited? And these were all things that, as a supposedly conscientious consumer, I had not thought through. So I appreciated that end of it because
1: it's catchy and like, you know, just, you know, spoil alert, right. Tom's figured it out, right. They did. I use that as an example of how, you know, you start down one path and you look at the data and you say like, what is our impact really? And if you see that your impact is not matching that intent, You are bold enough to shift, even if that means abandoning something that you did for years and that you kind of built a brand around a little bit, right? Totally. Um, So yeah. Yeah. So definitely there's all kinds of examples like that. So great. And then you also
0: weave in really fantastic stories from your own life experiences, which we dug into in the previous conversation when you were on the show about being a biracial mom at the age of 16 with two little babies and Everything that you worked through across your life to up to this point at age 40 and the stories that you wove in were so powerful and just illuminated so many different components around, again, whether you're building a business, working for a business or supporting a business, how are those businesses supporting people that come from every background and and situation and story? So much good stuff. Okay. So the beginning of the book, (laughs) I was dying. I first listened to the audio and then I got my hard copy, which is sitting right next to me right now the first chapter is called white people shit. And I was like, this is going to be the best book. I cannot wait. (laughs) I am so excited that the first chapter is called white people shit. And what is Trudy going to say? So can you tell us about white people shit and what white people must know about white people shit?
1: (laughs) Yes. So I, you know what? I love that people are loving that, that chapter because I really, that was the first chapter that I kind of, Conceptualized, right? When I was wanting to tell this story and really wanting to tell like where this journey really got serious for me and like, you know, attending this event and, and all of these things. And it was really important to me that I worked with a publisher who would let me put that as like the first yes. chapter <laughs> because it's not only where I wanted to tell the story because I thought it was important, but I wanted to kind of send a message that this book was going to be uncomfortable and that we were just going to say the things. And I think if you can get through the first couple pages of the chapter without being offended, you see that it's not what you think that I'm not, you know, totally. that white people shit is not the way I'm talking about. It isn't what you might think as like a, you know, derogatory meaning towards like white folks. Right.
0: Right. Oh, so- I thought myself laughing at myself more than anything. I was like, Oh my <laughs> God, she's so right. Like I've definitely done that.
1: <laughs> yes. So I'm talking about it in a couple of ways. And one of those ways is just the cultural differences between white folks and folks of color. And obviously folks of color are not a monolith and everyone has different cultural traits and beliefs and ways of being. But in the community that I grew up in, white people shit was a very particular term to, you know, talk about a set of behaviors that white folks share that we can observe and attitudes that they share. But also this kind of tone, setting a tone for the book that white culture is about rightness. It's about Mm -hmm. like establishing a narrative for people, again, from when we start being in school, right, that there's a right way to be and that there are wrong ways of being and right things to believe and wrong things to believe and right things to say and do and wrong things to say and do. And that those often fell across color lines and race lines. And so it's setting the stage for that, but it's also saying that the reason that that exists is because we created it to be that way. There shouldn't be white people's shit. There shouldn't be any, there's no biological basis for differences, right? Across races. So it's all cultural and it's what we, we have the communities that we have because we made them to be that way and we can make different choices. Yes.
0: You Throughout the book, highlight a lot of different things around white culture that are (laughs) alarming to me, things that I have done and fallen into and upheld over the course of my life, and that I did not connect to race at all until reading the book. And then also some of the work that I've done with you in different trainings and stuff. But there's so many things. And so you just you gave a great example about rightness. Another example that you talk about, and I've heard you reference in different ways, is hustle culture. And oh, yeah. the, like urgency is a white people thing. And I was like, oh my god, I it made so much sense after you talked about it, and after I've heard you talk about it a couple different times. But there's so many ways of being that are related to whiteness that I had no idea. Can you talk a little bit about hustle culture and urgency as a product of white supremacy?
1: Yeah, completely. What you have to understand is that white culture as a whole is designed to build, you know, amass power and maintain power. And that includes through financial, you know, economic means. I'm saying white culture. And I want people to understand that that is different than individual people, right? Mm -hmm. Like white culture is about what you can measure, Throughout a community, throughout a population, right? What features, what beliefs, what can you identify that is, you know, for the most part true on average, right? And so statistics can't be measured at an individual level. So I'm saying that because I'm sure that there are people who hear me, you know, hear us talking about that and they're like, well, I'm not like that. Mm. Yes, of course. Of course. The same way that there are plenty of people of color who buy into hustle culture. Right. But it's a product of this value, this belief that more is better right? That you have to be the most wealthy, that you have to be working nonstop, that 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 is the way to become successful. That comes from a white patriarchal narrative.
0: Mm-hmm. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this is, show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is I swear it's like, can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. You give examples around like 40-hour work weeks and or 50 or 60 hour work week. Yeah. Um, you talk about, you actually gave an example at the end of the book of a company that was, or not a company, a bill that was being proposed to go to a 32 hour work week, which I yeah. was, I was driving by the way, when I heard this and I was like, I need to pull over for a minute. Like
1: what is yeah. the status California. of California? So it's, it's something that is in, that is being worked st- on. Yeah.
0: So a bill to like change the work week. I think that the way that we manage time and the culture that we've created around time and how you spend your time is such a fascinating construct that I had given no thought to, and also definitely not connected it back to the constructs of race. And
1: that's a really fascinating uh, connection. Yeah. Because you have to think about like where these practices come from, Mm -hmm. right? They come from the, the hustle, the pushing people beyond their limits, for some individual person's economic gain can be traced back to slavery in this country, right? Like that's, there's a direct relationship between capitalism and the kind of wealth that we have consolidated in this country and slavery. There's no way around that, right? And so that When people lost the ability to have slaves, they had to turn it into something else. Right. Right. And so we exploit people's labor in all kinds of other ways. And one of those ways is, you know, underpaying them and overworking them and trying to sell the story that that's what we all should do. And that's what's right, especially where we are right now with technology, the way that it is and things like just the people working and living in the ways that they are. In most places, there's no need for a 40 hour work week anymore. Right. We just don't have that, you know, the way that our society has evolved, we don't need to go to the factory and spend, you know, like the whole, all the days there Maybe in some industries, but standardizing it across the board is unjust and inequitable. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And with all of these tools that have made work more efficient, it's only made us work harder. to your point, like it hasn't made us work less. We're like, Oh, now we can just do more.
1: (laughs) So, right. And in a lot of industries, you know, people aren't being compensated more, like they're not being compensated adequately to the way that inflation is you know, has kind of increased over the last couple of years. So yeah, we're like on a hamster wheel.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that you've started doing I think in just the last few months, you send out a Friday email. That's about your weekend, what you're going to do over the weekend. When you first started doing it, I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then I thought, I wonder if this is her like accountability (laughs) to make sure she actually rests on the weekend. And then Mm. as I was working through the book, I was like, oh no, this is like demonstrating what culture can look like if you aren't standing in the value of hustle culture and overworking and always being on and always needing to be producing
1: Yeah. I love those emails. It just started as like, I didn't intend for it to become something that like is ongoing, but what happened is I sent it out once and a whole bunch of people replied (laughs) and they were like, this is great. This is what my plan is. Thank you for sending this. Like I'm going to think about how I could spend some time. And so I kept sending them every Friday and people continue to respond. And I absolutely (laughs) love it. I literally love it. So I'm going to keep sending them and we're going to kind of move some of that information also over to Instagram, because it just seems that it's, yeah, it's helping people. And it is also an accountability for me in the, in the kind of way that because I'm reporting on it, I'll notice Mm -hmm. if I slipped into, you know, like working and I, I'm just, it's a point where I can separate. Cause here's the thing. I'm working from home all day, right. Just about every day, unless I'm traveling. So the blur between, you know, coming upstairs yeah. to my office and going downstairs to make a sandwich and being pulled into, you know, something with, cause we also homeschooled, like all of us are home. Right. So pu- being pulled into a conversation or a phone call with my husband and one of my kids needing something and coming back and finishing, I wouldn't know the difference between a Friday, a Saturday and a Wednesday, you know what totally. I mean? Like, unless I was taking like a real intentional moment to stop and say, okay, I'm going to shut down, do my best to shut down. How do I want to spend this time? Yeah. It's changed a whole lot for me. Yeah.
0: It's fun to see. And it's such a great reminder. And it's really important. I think that when we start to consider how we uphold certain values and certain systems and when we connect it to culture and the damage that it's done to some people, like the disadvantage that it puts other, some people at, I think is really, really important. Can you talk about the importance it is the importance and then the responsibility for each of us, as we look at building, whether we're a business owner, whether we work in someone else's business or whether we are again, a consumer of products, what is the responsibility that each one of us play in building anti-racist organizations? And this might be in our workplaces. It might be in our community organizations. It might be in our, it might be in our kids, like Girl Scout, Boy Scout troops, or in our churches our kids' sports leagues, like this can really, work. and as a parent, I've started to see how this applies to multiple layers of community in so many ways in the last couple of years. What do? How do each of us hold a responsibility in that?
1: Yeah. So if you are committed to contributing to a world that is anti-racist, and by that, I simply mean that where we live in a world where someone's race does not predict their future, Right now, that's the case. Right now, like if we just know someone's race and their zip code, we can make very accurate, you know, predictions about all kinds of things in someone's life. And that should not be right. right. Like that shouldn't it, race and zip code should not be the thing that determines whether or not you or you know that is influencing whether or not you have diabetes or drop out of high school or attend college and complete it. Right, that, that those things shouldn't exist. And so if you're committed to that world, you really do have to take an anti-racist, you know, practice, and the opportunities to do that I think as a consumer are to try your best to consume from places who have who share those same values. And that doesn't mean that doesn't automatically give people the responsibility to launch boycott campaigns against companies that you don't like, like you don't have to be an activist in that kind of way. I think people assume that that's what the ask is. The ask very simply is to, you know, try and spend your dollars with companies that share your values to the extent possible. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want to do more, certainly there's plenty of opportunities for that, but we're talking like at a minimum, right? Sure. In your kids' schools, advocating for education around equity and inclusion, you know, depending on what state you're in, you may be getting various degrees or none at all, right? No conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Advocate that accurate history is being told, you know, that being taught, like look at the textbooks, ask the questions, run for the school board if that's something that you can do, right? Like kind of get involved in that local level, if you're a leader in a company or a business owner, you know get the book, <laughs> look through the look through a couple of the recommendations around putting together community agreements and standardizing certain things around pay and how you hire. There in small businesses there is so much opportunity to be creating cultures that, you know, more closely resemble equitable environments. There's just so much opportunity there. Even if you work in the middle of the country where there's not a whole lot of black and brown folks you can still think about equity and inclusion within you know within a community where there's not a lot of racial diversity because there's probably all other kinds of diversity you know right. in that community so thinking about that you know more broadly and as business owners like really committing like understanding that this work is part of the foundation of a company that your culture work and your anti-racism work and equity work should be foundational and not something that you do like one training, you know, one training once a year or like check the box thing that you did, but that it's something that you're thinking about and that you're asking questions like whose voice isn't included? Who are we not reaching? You know, what assumptions are we making about people? Like how can we hear more directly from our team members and our consumers, right? Just having a more community engagement approach to your leadership will just start to reveal avenues to start getting some work done. Definitely.
0: I'm the co-chair of the parent association at my son's school. I was last year and will again do it this year, which has been a really interesting experience. And it's been cool to sit in on meetings and learn about how school systems work and all that kind of thing. But it's also been really fascinating to go from being a parent in a school where when you're the parent in the school, you're just like, How are my kids needs being met and to go from that, to sit in a room and think through anytime a suggestion or something is proposed to think through who has the potential to be most negatively impacted by this and the conversations that can come out of that and recognizing that like typically my white male son he's going to be fine like he's fine academically right. he's like so he's going to be fine so who might not be fine with this though if and that's been a really right. eye-opening experience to have conversation around that and I'm lucky to be in a school that's really open to having conversations around that but i think that that's like one layer of looking through moving from how does this impact my family or my child or me to what does this mean for other people and who does it have the most potential to either underserve or harm?
1: 100%. And like understanding too, I think there needs to be a shift or like a, I don't know, awareness that just because you're planning or you're like looking at the people at the margins, right. Doesn't mean that folks who don't have any barriers are going to be less served. Like there's this narrative that's like, Oh, if we help people, then, you know, that means that the the other folks are going to get neglected. Or if we help, if we give to one person, we're taking away from the other person. And that's just not that all or nothing kind of zero sum attitude around things like education and funding and all these things. It's just wrong. It's inaccurate if, and when we accommodate and like make plans to serve people at the margins the experience for everyone increases like it gets better for everyone and that's how you create like long term change and you know co- and community it's not through totally. just like what's convenient right now and what's best for one person right now
0: absolutely a really interesting conversation that I've had with a friend a few times in the last year or two, as her son has needed some accommodations at school is she's talked about like, as these accommodations are rolled out for a child who maybe has ADHD or is on the autism spectrum or what have you, there are accommodations that often benefit everyone. So if like you can help a kid who has ADHD focus better, like everyone, it gets to focus it's habits and practices that help everyone focus better because they're just healthy habits for building like being in community with one another. And so if you get, need to get up and get wiggles out, like everyone gets to get up and get wiggles out. Um, so right. Right. Like there's so much benefit to everyone. We all get to rise when we make space, when we ensure that everyone gets to rise,
1: but, and even that, right. That belief that it's all or nothing that comes from that patriarchal mm-hmm. white supremacist domination yeah. kind of like ideology that's like no we have to there's only so much power that can go around it has to be reserved for the smartest or the mm-hmm. most elite and which we know is not true always the smartest right it's the people right. who are closest in proximity to the wealth and and to yeah. people other people who hold that power right so this approach of serving everyone and making sure that everyone, you know, is adequately educated. It seems so basic, but it's a really radical concept because we just were not designed ever. We were never designed to provide that to people.
0: Yeah. 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 So, so important and such, it's a fundamental shift that (laughs) once you start talking about it and the way you've talked about it in the book and here and in other places, it's really obvious. I feel like it's <laughs> so obvious. It's, it's not, it's fairly simple. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that there might not be some hard work that needs to be done. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy oh, to integrate. Sure. It's not easy to integrate new systems and to create new systems. But there's a lot of times there's a lot of simplicity behind, like, oh, well, we could do it this way. And this is like simple and clear. It might take some work on the back end, but then like outcomes are going to be totally different and more beneficial yeah. to everyone
1: yeah the hard work is in the undoing and the yeah. unlearning, right yes. and like yes, unwinding yourself from these things that you thought for so long and believed for so so long and weren't even aware were' kind of showing up in the way that you behave and interact with people. that's what's hard. Yeah. It's not integrating new ways of being. It's getting rid of the the stuff that we've been used to for so long.
0: it really, yes, it really is the unlearning, and it's like retraining your brain. you're like, oh yeah. It is. And you also like when things get pointed, you're like, God, crap. I can't believe I thought that for so long and just blindly followed something. So now I have to unlearn that and be conscientious about like learning something different and doing something differently. Um, and yeah, yeah. so it's a process for sure.
1: Yeah. Which is precisely why, you know, we, I work with entrepreneurs, coaches, (laughs) business owners, and consistently, you know, after working, doing work on their business, everyone's like, oh, this is not just, this is, I feel like a different person now totally. because you can't separate. This work is deeply personal. Like it yeah. is. So you can't build a business that centers equity without like really looking at yourself, which is also something that we haven't, been, that hasn't been really celebrated as a good quality leadership quality <laughs> to like make it super personal right. and caring. Right. Right. Like it, it's the opposite. Right. So Yeah.
0: That's absolutely. As I started working on these things in my business over the last number of years, it's been amazing and difficult uh, to like be in any community situation. And like, you can't unsee things now. (laughs) You're like, oh, that's not right. And then you like, you're like, I'm not a person who doesn't say anything at this point. Like I've had too much education and training around this. So now
1: I have to say something. And my family members are like, oh God, here she goes. (laughs) Yeah, it, I used to give a disclaimer like if you really are going down this path, right? Like some of the things that were tolerable before, yeah. are going to become intolerable, and you know things are going to change. Like expect that things are going to change.
0: Totally, totally. I want to talk about community agreements. This was actually something that I got to see you model recently, and then you talk about it in the book and in the book, you talk about community agreements, um, in the context of business, when you build a business, what are the community agreements that the people in the business are going to agree upon and uphold and carry out. But when I went through a training with you recently, you, at the very beginning of the training, you were like, Hey, let's put together community agreements that we're all going to, um, uphold and hold in a place of respect so that this can be a place where people are where there's a sense of trust, a sense of belonging. Um, and I thought it was a really cool activity. So we're actually going to be doing it in our membership community in a couple different ways coming up. But I think this is a really important piece that can be overlooked when we are looking at how do we build communities where people can, where we all are building a sense of trust, belonging, equity, um, and safety. So talk about community yeah. agreements and how we can use them across our communities and organizations and our households. I think
1: like families need to have community agreements. Totally, Totally. The fact that So I'll just say, I believe that anyone, everyone should have community agreements. Like if you have, if you are, like you said, in a home, in a business or, and especially if you run like coaching communities or you gather people for retreats or like you should have community agreements. In fact, when I kind of transitioned from more of a traditional consultant facilitator career into coaching, I was shocked that people did not have them. I was like, what is ha- What is happening? Yeah. It's such a community agreements is such a, like a foundational skill for doing trainings and workshops and things like that, because you have to set the ground rules for how people are going to work together. Right. Otherwise, otherwise what you have is everyone brings their own ground rules from what they're used to doing yeah. and what their values are and they show up and just assume that that's how this space is going to work and that usually doesn't work out <laughs> like it just doesn't right. you know people are have different values they're coming to the table with different things so anytime you gather people certainly if it's in a company if you're in a any kind of group coaching or any team anything that you have community agreements that say, these are our principles. These are the things that we believe, that we agree to, that we won't cross the line on these things. And that we understand that if we cross the line, there are consequences, right? There are going to be consequences. And that could be a variety of things from, you know, corrective action in a workplace or being removed from a community or getting a warning and then being removed or having a conversation with a staff member or something, you know, whatever those things are. And that they become something that you ask people agree to agree to upfront, and if they can't, they don't get to participate. Which is, I think, really you know, people who
0: do the work, people who sign up to do work with you, are not going to disagree with community agreements. But as you were sharing community agreements when we recently went through a training, I was thinking about if I were to be in a corporation doing some facilitation in any given corporation, because you're bringing people from all sorts of backgrounds into a workplace, people might have a huge range of values. And there absolutely might be people who are like, I'm not cool with that. And they might choose to not participate, which is fine. And when those people decide to opt out, it enhances safety for other people. It enhances trust for other people. Um, so giving people that autonomy to be like, I'm in or I'm out and either way, fine. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. Either way, fine. But these are the, the rules of this space. It's like, if someone comes to your house, like you have expectations for how you want them to behave, right? Like I go to people's house sometimes and I'm like, is this a shoes on house or a shoes off house? Like I need, you know, like I want to know before I, before I get there. Right. So I can be prepared to take my shoes off if I need to and be comfortable. Right. right? Or if I don't want to do that, I don't have to come over my choice. Right. Right. So having those, it does, it establishes the expectations and the culture of the container. And it lets people know how they're expected to operate, you know, and like kind of treat each other and what they can expect. So it does increase safety, but it also, especially if you run, if you have a big team or run a big community, like it gives you an operating procedure for, you know, what happens if some of these, like, where do we stand on things? It gives you like, you're thinking in advance, right? You know, if things go wrong, or if this thing pops up, like, how are we going to handle it? Or do, is it a, anything goes here? Or do we have boundaries around what people can do and say to each other? Yeah. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the mindful mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent.
0: unlearning and relearning. I think you do such a great job of letting people know that it's okay to start with like one or two things, like start small, and then you can add things over time. And you gave such a great example earlier that like, you don't have to go out and be this like stand on a stage screaming activist on day one, that it can be like choosing where to spend money a little differently. And that can be step one. And so I want to encourage people that you don't have to come up with like a 20 page family document on your community agreements. You absolutely can decide like, here's two or three things we're going to do as a family and right do that for a while and add to things over time, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your work organization, it doesn't need to be this massively overwhelming task or achievement. It can be something where you're just giving yourself permission to start and then take the learning that comes from that and evolve from there.
1: Yeah. And most people have, some already, they may not be written down, you know, but maybe it's like no phones at the dinner table or, you know, whatever, you know, I do suggest that people do write them down and put them on the fridge and, you know, Mm -hmm. or keep them handy because this is the kind of thing too, that introduces people to your home. Right. So if you Mm -hmm. have like no phones at the dinner table, does that include if guests are like come over, like, how do you introduce that to guests that might come over, or is it only for family dinners, right? Thinking about these things, having the opportunity to talk to your families about why the rule is the rule, you know, like, and if you can do a little better than, cause I say, so that's always a good thing, you know, but like, yeah, it just gives you the chance to have those conversations in advance. Mm -hmm. So that when you have to say, Oh, remember, we don't do this it doesn't have to become, you know, like a back and forth. It's oh, totally. it's something we've already decided and agreed, agreed upon. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So that's going to be the, inv- the action item
0: invitation for folks listening is to create, create some community agreements to get yourself started or pick what you already have. That's just like unwritten and write it down. Yeah. I want to shift gears a bit. And I want to talk about Roe v. Wade and the overturning of Roe oh, v. Wade and yes this, I'm, I feel like I'm taking like a sharp right here, but I, when I was thinking through what I wanted to talk about today, I was like, this is, I think a really important piece. And I haven't talked about this on the show. And I think that because I'm a white woman leading conversations with most who, with an audience of mostly white women, I think it's so important that we talk about white women's rage. (laughs) And when we saw um, Roe v. Wade get overturned, the, what I saw happening on social media, that was really fascinating to me. And th- in all honesty, I didn't see coming was I saw black women talking about how problematic it was, if not like triggering and traumatizing for black women, that white women were so enraged because of course yeah. we should have been enra- all of us should have been enraged by that. If that's of your value system that you believe abortion should be safe and available, but what was the problem? If you could dig into that a bit, what was the problem with white women's rage with that decision?
1: So this is one of those things that is like super complicated Mm -hmm. because it's not one, it's not one thing. And there's so many people that feel so many different ways about it. Right. It's so, it's just so complicated. So What can I say? What can I say? (laughs) What continues to be frustrating about white women's rage is that it demonstrates itself, you know, in very self-serving ways, right? Like it is always the loudest when the issue that people are talking about are the one that affects them directly. And that same energy around human rights, right? It's the same language around like human rights and my body, my choice, and all these things are not, you know, that same energy doesn't come up when we're talking about issues affecting that are mostly affecting black and brown folks, right? Especially black women. So that it's like, where's that energy when it's not about you? So that is absolutely frustrating that, yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to face also because just in terms of numbers, right. White women, white women are going to be the most protected and most dominant voice right outside of white men. Right. So the opportunity for change to happen, like in this country at a policy level is really consolidated in that base of like, of white women. Right. So if white women can gather that energy for abortion, and or harness that same energy that they have around Roe v. Wade, for all kinds of other things, right? Right. We'd see. Re- I mean, take voting rights for for one, right? It's something that's totally really kind of right in front of us. You know what I mean? And as we're going to be entering an election cycle and all of the things all of the gerrymandering that's happening, particularly in urban centers, like that alone has so much influence on so many of our lives, like, right. Who gets to vote for which candidates, where's that energy for that? Like, where's the energy totally. for, you know, those are things that are going to have more influence over whether other rights that we have all now taken for granted continue to be things that we have or not.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for digging into that. I think there's another layer to it as well around that I've seen black leaders talking about is that the things that are shocking to white women are not shocking to people of color. They're like, yeah, like like this is what we've been living. Yeah. (laughs) Right another Tuesday with a really bad, you know, decision by the government. Like that happens every day for people of color. And so I think there's this other, when there's like this surprise and shock and horror, it's like a huge display, can be a huge display of ignorance.
1: Yeah. It just shows how out of touch that community is with, you know, the ways Mm -hmm. that marginalized people all over the United States are like, continue to be treated and face all these systemic challenges just for basic things, right. right? For basic affordable housing, adequate food, right? right. Like right, equal employment opportunities, like basic stuff.
0: Yeah. One of the things I caught myself doing on the day that it was, I'm trying to remember if it was the day that it was that the article came out that Roe v. Wade would likely be overturned or if it was the day that it actually happened in either case. Yeah. I might have done it both days, but it was getting on social media and posting like every three to five minutes on Facebook, like with a new like enraged post about whatever. Yeah, and then, and I don't remember who was talking about it. It might have been Weeze, who is your podcast co-host. It was like, I see you all with your like all you white women with your like Twitter updates every thirty seconds, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> That's totally me, but it's like catching yourself in those things and recognizing like, oh, even if I feel like I'm doing a decent amount of work and really trying to be an ally, be an advocate, and also feel like I've done a fair amount of unlearning and relearning, there's always still more to do. And you said this at the beginning, like it's, it's a journey, it's a process and you're never going to get to the end.
1: Right. Because honestly, like the Twitter updates aren't really impactful. They feel- cathartic, right? Like that you're releasing that energy into the world. And it's like, you're getting that frustration you're able to kind of get it out, but it actually doesn't do anything, but right. kind of increase the frenzy on social media. Right. And what's right. needed in that moment is for people to be getting on the phone and calling, you know, their representatives and raising money and getting it to abortion funds and seeing how, you know, like seeing what are the things that people need to make sure that they can get access to the healthcare that they need. Right. It's, that's the work that needs to happen. It's not the Twitter updates and social media has done such a fantastic job at tricking us into thinking that our, social media platforms are substitutes for like real action, whether that's like advocacy or I mean, advocacy, there's all kinds of advocacy that's happening online, but whether it's like passive learning that we think we're doing something because we're just like consuming a lot of free like content and following all the people who are important online, right? Whether, whether you're thinking that that's a substitute for actual personal development or that you're Twitter rants are a substitute for mobilization efforts, like in yeah. your community, right? It's social media has done a good job at tricking us into thinking that stuff is real because it serves the platform for all mm-hmm. of us to just be stuck there. Yeah, but that's not where, and it's in the best interest of all of the people who want us to not be really be taking action to just continue to sit on our phones, right?
2: Yes. So yes.
1: there's actual work. There's actual, actual work. work. It's interesting in those
0: moments, I find that my extrovert friends and I'm an extrovert that we are the ones who are like immediately like commenting and sharing and talking about things. And like, we're externally processing and that's a means of external processing. And then my introvert friends are sitting quietly. And like a week later, I'll get a message. That's like an actual mobilization. That's like, Hey friend, here's like a policy or here's like an action step that like, I'm taking, do you want to do this too? And I'm like, Oh my God. Like the introverts have like the patience and the thoughtful intentionality where they're not just like vomiting on social media to feel productive and process, but they're like sitting there, like thinking it through coming up with a plan and then they're activating. And I've learned a lot from watching my introvert
1: friends do that, that that's so much more purposeful. It is. And I, I wonder too, if, um, you know, just kind of thinking about the different roles that we play, I'm imagining my mom, you know, who is actually a politician, right. Mm. Who does spend a lot of day on Facebook, like talking about all the policies, you know, the policy changes, but people know her in that role and like how different it is between that and someone who's more, you know, like you, even myself, like someone who has more of a public profile that, you know, it can, people are watching you right. And consuming everything that you put out in the world, And they're modeling that and they're thinking that that's the work. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, like, so if we have that kind of influence where people are watching us, like we have to be mindful of like, what's the message? And that's what I like critical. Like, what's the message I send when I do this? Like when I'm, you know, just, it's different between posting where you stand once and like just the stream of consciousness on Twitter and how do our community members like interpret that we can have a discussion on whether or not that's fair that your people, we you know we're people too and all that, but like, it comes with the job. If the, you know, we've built like these jobs for ourselves, And I think that part of the responsibility of that is to be reflective about how, how you, the ways that you show up online are influencing other people's behavior. Absolutely. Um, and so that transparency there, I think is important. Yeah, definitely.
0: Definitely. Oh my goodness. I could ask you like 27 more questions, but I'm going to respect your time and not do that. <laughs> so this has been so good. I feel like we've gotten through a lot of stuff here, a yes. lot of good stuff. Um, I want people to go get the book. I want you to tell people how you work with them because you work with people in a few different ways. That's are really cool. Um, and then also if you want to point people to your podcast as well, I mentioned it earlier. So
1: yeah,
0: share sure. all the things.
1: So the ways that we work with people in our Institute for Equity Center co- Coaching, we certify coaches and leaders. So we have a equity centered coach training and equity centered leader certifications that are year long. And we have a couple start dates in the fall. And we also do intensives and retreats. And so like the trauma informed intensive that you just did, you know, uh, three-day intensives, you know, deep learning. And the theme across our work really is to help people build anti-racist businesses and to help especially coaches and people who occupy roles of a coach. So that could be, we have teachers in our programs, professors, doctors, people who want to take a more coach-centered quality to the relationships with their clients, help them learn high quality coaching skills that are actually based on coaching psychology and anti-racist practice. And
0: everything that Trudy does is phenomenal and based in like such a high level of expertise and your the various educational backgrounds that you pull from. I'm just like always amazed at how you help let things overlap. It's a really fantastic way to learn. Okay. Final question. How are you currently showing up as a shameless mom?
1: Oh, well... Just sending my son to camp and enjoying like all the freedom count. (laughs) Yes, I'm going to miss him so much. And you know what? I'm going to be like, the only way to have contact is to like look for the photos that they upload to the little app every day. So I'm going to be waiting every day for that. And I'm also going to very much enjoy some time off. I took a couple of days off of work too. So nice. I'm going to try you to know no day-to-day, no mommy responsibilities for a couple of days. I love, is this his first year at sleepaway camp? No, he went last year, but just for a week. Okay. And so this year he wanted okay. to do two because okay. he really enjoyed it. So, Oh my gosh. So exciting. Oh, Trudy, thank you so
0: much. So, I'm going to link Thanks everything up in me. the show notes. If people go to shamelessmom.com, click on the episode with Trudy LeBron, the second episode, and everything will be linked right there. You can get access to the book, to her website, to social media, all the good stuff. Trudy, thank you for the work that you're doing in the world Thanks. and everything that you've brought here today. I appreciate it. Thanks
1: you so for having much. me.